Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a little-known group tasked with developing a master plan for the preservation and restoration of Connecticut's state capitol building. The Preservation and Restoration Commission is expected to meet Tuesday to decide on a recommendation over one of the marble statues that adorn the outside of the capitol. History buffs may know John Mason, a founder of the Connecticut colony, but he's also a colonist that in 1637 led a massacre killing hundreds of Pequot people. It's that history that has led to suggestions his statue be removed. Today, where we live, we bring different perspectives on this question. Coming up, we hear from Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward. You can join us, too. Statues from the 19th and 20th centuries, do they serve a purpose today? No matter the answer, what are we all doing to learn more about the context behind these historical figures? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining our conversation first is Rodney Butler, chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Chairman Butler, welcome back to the show. Uh, Good morning and thank you, Lucy, for having me back. I appreciate uh, the time today. Now, you submitted uh, video comments at this November commission hearing asking that the statue be moved to the old state house where it might be better understood. A part of your comments were, quote, I'm not here to erase that history, but to help put it into a more comprehensive context. What do you mean, Chairman Butler, and how would moving the statue help change the context? Well, again, thank you, Lucy. Great question. Uh, You know, from our perspective, the Mason statue on the Capitol facade is intended to glorify Mason's actions rather than to provide an education on what took place. Right. In fact, you know, I've been to the Capitol many times. and You can check my testimony over the years where I've actually spoken on exactly that, that as I walk in the building, it's offensive to to, to see this this bust of a, a man who slaughtered so many, uh, so many Pequot ancestors. And the look of surprise on the legislators face that they didn't even know he was on there. It just tells you how important he is in the mind of, from, from their perspective. But, you know, when you think about Mason himself, one only has to consider the proximity of Mason's statue to the stone engraving that's also on the facade of the Pequot massacre um, on the building and to understand what is being celebrated. I think, and from a broader context, you know, listening back on the hearing, and unfortunately I wasn't able to be there, I had to do a video message, but I thought Dr. Mancini's point about Connecticut's role in Indian policy was probably the most important point that most didn't pick up on. And he noted that Connecticut is literally ground zero for Indian affairs and the policy in this nation, right? I mean, you look at the total warfare, cultural genocide, the creation of reservations and other forms of land disposition, enslavement and racism, it's deeply rooted in the Connecticut story. And yet he said, these lived experiences remain abstractions for most of our residents. And I would contend that Mason's statue on the Capitol building celebrates Connecticut's role in that history. Mm. 
So let's uh, dig into that uh, more, uh, Chairman Butler. I mentioned this massacre on a Pequot village in Mystic in 1637, also known as the Pequot War. Uh, you had mentioned uh, some lawmakers surprised that John Mason is even adorning the state capitol. But I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise uh, that many people in our state don't know a lot about that history of the Pequot War. So tell us briefly what happened that day. Well, I mean, it's complex, right? I mean, there's uh, first of all, I'd, I'd send anyone to the uh, the, the Pequot Battlefields uh, uh, website uh, that we worked on with uh, with many historians, including uh, Dr. Woodward, um, and, and building the timeline of what led up to the Pequot War. But I mean, in, in short, um, you know, when colonial colonialism in itself um, was, you know the colonists moving into the lands of, of our ancestors, our native ancestors all throughout, uh, through, Eng- through New England. And, you know, to, to say that uh, moving to a new land, uh, at least new to them, and, and taking property uh, from uh, inhabitants who have lived there for millennium um, is okay, and that they shouldn't be upset about it, I think is a false narrative. And so, um, you know, when you think about the time frame and what was occurring, and the self-preservation mode that my ancestors and, and many tribes throughout New England and eventually across the country were in, um, you know, that was the context of the Pequot War. And leading up to the Pequot Massacre, um, which happened on um, on May uh, 21st, uh, 1637, you know, that early that morning, uh, Mason and his uh, and his troops, um, along with some of the Mohegan and Minority Ancet relatives. Um, attacked a dormant fort uh, where men, women, and children were sleeping at that time, and slaughtered you know several hundred of them in a single single morning. And so, um, and, and, and fascinating to think about it in, in the sense that, and Chief Malerba had spoke on it from the Mohegan's perspective uh, during the hearing that even for for us, you know, we had look, we had conflict as natives back then. Right, but that that type of warfare was new to us—a complete slaughter and annihilation. It wasn't even acceptable uh, to the Mohegans and Narragansetts who had joined uh, John Mason at the time, and they they turned away uh, in, in in sorrow. Uh, and um, you know, and, and that's that's that point of history that that turned not only for us but for for tribes throughout the region and throughout the country at large. And so, you again support the removal of John Mason because of. The fact that he led this massacre in, in 1637, uh, uh, his descendant also spoke at that hearing, saying that you know you can't judge a man by that one particular incident, and and he did he was a founding father of uh, the Connecticut colony, and and so when we think about removing the statue and putting it in the old state house, what do you want to see happen then, Chairman? Well, it's 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 certainly not about. Uh, simply removing and erasing history. I mean, that, that's not the point here. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I have tremendous respect for uh, for Dr. Woodward and, and quite frankly, his amazing partnership with us over the years uh, in my nation and sharing our history. Um, but one of the things that he had mentioned during his testimony was was adding, you know, some some native leaders to uh, to to the building as well to try to balance it out. And I think that that misses the, the, the point, right? The, the point here is that the statue itself is glorifying atrocities committed that we find so offensive, particularly given that it, you know that's represented on the state uh, capitol building. I think the, the, what we're trying to accomplish is not just simply removing and acting like it didn't exist. It, it happened, right? We know it happened. 
And what we're saying is similar to what you're seeing in the town of Windsor, which, by the way, is known for Mason and founding it. You know, the Windsor Historical Society is saying we need to move the statue that they have there, which originally came from Mystic, by the way, that sat on the grounds or close to the grounds of the original massacre to speak about offensive. Um, you know, we need to put it into context in, in a way that we can actually you know, speak about it from a balanced perspective of, you know, what happened in history and his role in it and and, and who he was as a person. And so, again, we're, we're not trying to erase history. Um, we're certainly we're simply saying let's not celebrate it, but let's move to the state house so we can have a, an open conversation and, and talk about the, the history of this man who probably did some good things uh, within the state. But, you know, in the context of the, the massacre, I mean, that's a that's a big um that's a big moment in our history as a state and a defining one for Hina as an individual that I'm not sure the residents of the state truly want to celebrate. You're hearing uh, Chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, Rodney Butler, as we talk about this upcoming uh, vote from the State Preservation and Restoration Commission. Uh, they're going to vote on its recommendation over this marble statue of John Mason that adorns the outside of the Capitol. Um, we're going to be hearing from our state historian, Walt Woodward, uh, coming up. Uh, but again, uh, Chairman Butler, you spoke at this hearing. I should mention that members of the Eastern Pequot Tribal Nation also submitted comment supporting the removal of the Mason statue. I'm just wondering what response you got after that hearing, uh, not only from people uh, among your tribe, but from other residents uh, when they think about the context, because again, the context is something that a lot of people are not familiar with. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Lisa. And I think that lack of context allows a statue like that to reside on the Capitol and nobody think twice about it. But what I've seen um, from the, the follow-up conversation that has ensued is it really has opened up dialogue about education. And I, and I always tie this to uh, the importance. We have we had so many great pieces of legislation passed this year uh, from, a, from the Pequot perspective within the state legislature. But I'll say none more important uh, than the Native Curriculum Initiative. Uh, because without that foundation of education of who we are and the, found, and the true uh, you know, beginnings and roots of Connecticut, you know, the state that's that's an Algonquin word for the Long Tidal River, you know, that that is the foundation of the relationship that we'll have uh, as as Native people and the citizens of the state of Connecticut moving forward. And and that that's important. It's, it's all about education um, and and truly believe that that will that will change the relationship that we have uh, for generations to come. Earlier, you mentioned Jason Mancini, who's with uh, Connecticut Humanities, that also submitted uh, testimony, spoke at that uh, commission hearing. Uh, when we think about uh, that moment in 1637, uh, that massacre of uh, men, women, and children um, in Mystic, you know, almost led to the extinction of the Pequot people. And you had referenced that this was then a model for how white settlers would go on to nearly eradicate North Americans. Yeah, no, it happened over and over and over. When you think about the, uh, you know, the, the, the end of the Pequot War, uh, it was sealed with the Treaty of Hartford, which there were many components of the Treaty of Hartford, but one of them uh, in, in 1638 uh, uh, was specific to the Pequot and uh, saying that, you know, the Pequot, and, and summarizing, the Pequot essentially no longer existed. We couldn't speak our language. Uh, we were divided up as, as slaves um over you know with amongst the the, the colony uh the neighboring tribes 
um, and um, and sent into the Caribbean slave trade as well. And you mentioned my, my cousins, the Eastern Pequot, and just a quick point of history here, the Eastern Pequot were actually the, rem- the remaining Pequots from uh, the Pequot War who were sent uh, to be slave to the Narragansett, and the Western Pequot, which is Mashantucket Pequot, were actually uh, placed amongst the Mohegan. And again, I, I note that that even for us as Native people at the time, it was so foreign, that type of warfare and to then the assumption of slaves and the like, that both the Mohegan uh, and Narragansett eventually uh, released uh, the, the, the Pequot captives from both tribes. Uh, and we settled in and eventually had reservations, which you think about the conflict itself, right? The initial reservation system that, that we had and we still reside on since 1666 here in Mashantucket. And that model uh, just played out for the following centuries. Mm. Again, this commission hearing is tomorrow. They'll vote on its recommendation. And then it goes uh, to uh, the Office of Legislative Management, which controls the 14-acre uh, Capitol campus, uh, about whether to remove and relocate uh, the statue. Uh, no matter the outcome of the vote, how will you keep talking about the Pequot War and the importance of, of learning this history, Chairman Butler? Well, again, I, I go back to um, the, the Native American curriculum. I think that's that's the key component moving forward. I mean, these these are symbols and, and simple reminders of how far we haven't come uh, as a state and as a nation uh, with coming to terms with our history and, and and how to move forward. And so that curriculum is key. I mean, there's the mascot bill as well that was passed and uh, addresses uh, you know the municipal high school mascots and. And the funding tied to whether you keep your native mascot or not, um, but but ultimately, as we continue to move forward with this administration um, and the State Department of Education, and we roll out um, you know a basic curriculum that allows the entire state of Connecticut uh, to fully understand and embrace our history as a state. Um, that that's really the ultimate goal moving forward. It's not about simply taking down statues and, and placing them in a, in a more historical context. It's it's just a, a part of the much, much broader discussion that's required. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Rodney Butler, again, is the chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Thank you for your time today. Absolutely, Lucy. Thank you. I appreciate it. After the break, we'll hear from Connecticut State Historian Walt Woodward. Tomorrow, a special commission, again, will vote on its recommendation over whether to remove the John Mason statue from the state capitol. What's your take? In recent years, discussions around the country have led to the removal of Confederate statues and statues of Christopher Columbus. Some have even been removed in our state. Have these discussions helped Americans learn more about our history? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Should the statue of John Mason, a founder of the Connecticut Colony, be removed from the state capitol? That's the question before a special commission weighing public input in the context of Mason's role leading a massacre of Pequot people in 1637. Hearst, Connecticut's Ken Dixon reported the projected cost to remove the 3,000-pound Mason statue is in excess of $50,000. It's expected on Tuesday the State Capital Preservation and Restoration Commission will make a recommendation on whether to remove and relocate the Mason statue. State Senator and Commission member Kathy Austin tells us there's a $5 million budget for updates to the state capitol building. Now, joining us now on Zoom is state historian Walt Woodward, who's also associate professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Walt, welcome back. Good morning, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. You also spoke at that commission hearing, and you touched on one alternative uh, for keeping the Mason statue outside the capitol, but also filling in these empty niches. So can you tell us more about your proposal? Well, what I would like to see, and I... I you know, I understand Chairman Butler's position on uh, elevating native leaders to the to the capital, but I think there's a real opportunity here. You know, the people who the people who designed the capital in the late 19th century meant for it to be a living history book for the statuary on the capital to tell the story of Connecticut's history, and for them, of course. It was a triumphalist story of uh, great Connecticut people who looked like them. They were you know, these people were largely uh, the white Anglo descendants of the Puritan founders. And so that was their model. But I think what's happened in the centuries since then is that we've really we've we've really developed a new understanding of how history works. It's not a story of saints and sinners and perfect people. Uh, there are people with, with flaws and faults, and any, any effort to tell the story of Connecticut as a story of great men and women is ultimately, I think, doomed to fail because we, we move forward in history, if we move forward at all, uh, uh, cautiously and slowly and through failures and successes. I think the history should reflect that. I think the history on the building should reflect the reality of our history, which even in the case of the Pequot War was uh, far more complex than a good guy, bad guy story of uh, terrible John Mason and uh, 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 totally innocent opponents. It was, even as Chairman Butler pointed out, this was a time of great conflict between indigenous people and the English settlers. It, it wasn't just a story of colonization. The, the English people brought into Connecticut were invited by the sequins because they had been, the sequin was a tribe up at Hartford and they were trying to resist aggression by the Pequots who had been on a kind of colonizing effort through the 17th century. This history is really complex and the great opportunity for us is to use it 
to talk about questions of justice and redress and race and erasure. And we still have, uh, I think, many places on the Capitol where this story in all its complexity can be told. This particular John Mason statue erected, I believe, in, in 1909. Uh, so it's been up there for some time. Uh, statues certainly are not something we need uh, to learn history, uh, Walt. And so when we think about contextualizing this uh, with your proposal, so to keep the statue where it is, but how do we do a better job as a state to learn about this particular uh, moment in sixty? Well, I, I think Chairman Butler is right. Having an indigenous curriculum in the the Connecticut school system is a tremendously important first step. But I think, you know, if, if, if the John Mason statue is moved into a museum, the unfortunate truth of museums, and they are trying very hard to, uh, to become much more inclusive and diverse, but museums are today largely places where uh, middle-aged white uh, women largely are the primary attendees. They are not places where people go uh, to to really engage critical issues most of the time, unfortunately, although there are places that do that. I can't think of a better place to tell these stories than at the state capitol where the, you know, where the, the real work of the state is done every day and not just to museum visitors, but to the people engaged in creating the future. And the way you do that is through careful signage, through uh, through having spaces in the Capitol where you can engage and talk about and use these stories to reflect not only on the past, but on the issues we face in the present. The Capitol was intended to be a, a place of learning and a model uh, to learn about the state's history. I'm just proposing that we rethink what that history lesson should be and still use it for that. You're hearing state historian Walt Woodward here on Where We Live. So up until this point, uh, Walt, have these stories and discussions been shared at the Capitol? I know school groups uh, go to the Capitol, at least uh, before the pandemic. And so has there been an absence of teaching this history? Well, I, you know, the League of Women Voters, who I believe is the one who, uh, uh, the group that supervises the tours of the Capitol, I think over the years they've been, they've been, they have used that to tell the Capitol story pretty well. But there's certainly, you know, this is a, we've actually at the Capitol been engaged throughout the 21st century and even before that in a kind of rethinking of what the statuary means. We have, you know, Prudence Crandall is now, uh, her statue is in the state capitol as part of this rethinking story. And, uh, you know, we could we could have done a better job, I think, if we really accepted the fact that this is not the place where Connecticut's great and glorious, the stories of the, the, the saints are told, but where the stories of frail people who who uh, who were good and bad, but who uh, who who helped the state move forward, or maybe not, are told. Zooming out from the John Mason statue question, if it should remain or be moved, other founding fathers adorn uh, the state capitol, and when we look into their history, Walt also complicated. Well, there are there are there are slave owners up there. There there are 
you know, the the statuary on the Capitol is there because there was a kind of selective remembering of history that went into the selection of most of the people who are up there. I would argue that in some ways, removing statues or replacing them, if it's done with a similar selective uh, choice of what parts of history we want to remember, is is not going to be successful and it's not going to be as useful as we as it could be. One of the people who is up there near John Mason is John Winthrop Jr., who was uh, one of the early governors of Connecticut. He was, uh, I think, instrumental in helping end witchcraft executions in Connecticut. He also was instrumental in supporting the Pequots in their efforts to come back after the Pequot War, after the Treaty of Hartford had said, you can, you, the Pequots, can no longer exist as a people. He was instrumental in defending their right to regather. That is, you know, that's a story that's not told very often. It's absolutely true. And we could tell that about him. And yet Winthrop was also, we know that he was an enslaver. So how do we handle these mix of traits of people? They they just don't fit our modern wish to have good guys and bad guys only. It doesn't work. Uh, before, when you were on the show, we talked about how you're going to be retiring and there's a search for a new state historian, Walt. This sounds like the, the perfect opportunity for that new historian to pick up uh, wherever this uh, this uh, chapter closes, depending on what happens with the statue. You know, what do you want to see uh, in the next year or two when we think about our history and the difficult conversations that need to be had? I would... It- I would be so thrilled if my successor came in and played a role in a much larger discussion of how we are going to use history at the state capitol, but expanding out from that in our schools and as a culture and society. History is the way we look at the past to instruct, uh, to instruct how we uh, think and act moving forward, but it's often, you know, this is a great opportunity to, to think about history and its value in a different way, to think about how culture and values change over time and what that might mean both for the present and for the future. My fear is that taking statues away uh, ultimately produces a kind of amnesia. We let Mason be the scapegoat for three centuries of uh, abuse and mistreatment of indigenous people that, you know, Mason's gone, so we don't have to think about that anymore. That would be a terrible loss. Walt Woodward, again, is Connecticut State Historian. We thank you for your time today, Walt. Thank you, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we hear my recent conversation with U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, Connecticut's former education commissioner. We talk about the COVID surge, recent school threats, and student loan debt, among other topics. First, it's the first day of Connecticut Public Radio's end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. Each day where we live brings you live conversations with Connecticut residents about a variety of issues. Please support the context you hear each day with a pledge.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now is U.S. Education Secretary Dr. Miguel Cardona, Connecticut's former Education Commissioner. Secretary Cardona, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Now, we last spoke in January before your Senate confirmation, so you've been on the job for, what, nine months? What has stood out to you so far in your new position? Just the amazing opportunity we have and the commitment of our educators, of our parents, of our students to reopen schools and be be together. And people wanted to be together again, and they are. And um, I've been fortunate to have a bird's eye view of the joy that our students are feeling uh, to be back in the classrooms with their friends, uh, with their teachers. And not, I'm not going to say back to normal because, you know, we're still using mitigation strategies. Things are not the same. Uh, but they're back together, and I think that's really important to celebrate. So much has changed, just thinking about it in the last few weeks, the fact that uh, 5 to 11-year-olds are now able to access uh, the COVID uh, vaccine. But I also wanted to talk to you about school climate and safety. There was that school shooting in Oxford, Michigan, the deadliest school shooting since 2018. And there have been multiple school closings recently in Connecticut and in other states after threats, some of those threats coming in on social media. So, Secretary Cardona, what can the federal government do to help school districts? And when I think about that, the students, the staff who have been facing multiple disruptions and trauma. You know, I remember my last year serving as uh, principal of a school in Meriden, uh, was when the tragedy at Sandy Hook happened, and that was too close. You know, you felt hopeless uh, when when that took place. And and I remember having conversations with those brave parents who turned that tragedy into a cause. Uh, I'm inspired by them, and I know uh, the conversation continues across the country on how best to address that from a political perspective. But what I can tell you is that in our schools, we are really moving toward understanding the importance of a balanced educational program that includes social and emotional well-being at the core of it, that includes improved access to mental health supports for our students who need it. Um, and, you know, we, we we're experiencing a pandemic together. Many of our students are coming in with trauma from the pandemic. Uh, we must really double down on our efforts to provide mental health supports for our students and access to social and emotional learning so that they can feel comfortable in their schools and uh, the bandwidth for learning is, is greater. So I really feel across the country, we have an opportunity here to increase supports. There's greater funding for this. And the president made it very clear that uh, part of this funding should go toward increased access to social emotional learning and mental health supports for our students. Support for students, certainly important. But what about school staff, uh, Dr. Cardona? Well, again, when we think about all these disruptions and, you know, a lot of shock in our state recently when you saw so many different schools being closed because of social media threats. Mm. You know, when you talk about staff, I think we must recognize that through this pandemic, it's not only our students that were affected, our staff were affected. Even just the changes in schedules and and, and living conditions, we had different uh, parents, uh, uh, teachers and educators caring for their parents, for their children. Um, uh, you know, housing situations were different. People were working from home. There was a lot of dysregulation 
across the country. And we must recognize that we're all coming back together. Uh, and we're, we have to care for our educators in order for them to care for our students. And we have to ensure that our buildings are uh, not only physically safe, but emotionally safe so that we can get to the business of teaching and learning and uh, fostering those relationships that we know our students need to be successful. You mentioned the the federal infusion of all this money in communities that can help support initiatives and programs uh, to support mental health. Uh, this is really telling when you see the U.S. Surgeon General just issuing a public health advisory on the mental health challenges. Dr. Cardona, you know, symptoms of depression and anxiety double. Uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, again, uh, we see these statistics uh, also uh, increasing rates of, of suicide, and it's just really troubling. And so can you talk about some specifics when we think about boosting mental health support? Like, what would that look like in a school district? I visited a school in Michigan that had three campuses for their high schools. It, there were 6,000 students in this uh, three campus high school. And each one of these 6,000 students had a change in their schedule, a period schedule to have at least one period for social emotional learning or access to mental health if needed. Uh, so what they did was they structured it so all students, which means that they increased the number of staff members that are available to support students. New York City hired over 500 social workers to provide more support for students and staff and staff. So these are tangible things that can be done uh, with the American Rescue Plan funds. Um, we also need to understand that in order to help our students, we have to make sure we're providing good professional learning opportunities for our teachers to help understand, understand the signs of trauma, right? As the signs of trauma could also could often be uh, misinterpreted as discipline or, or behavioral issues. When a student has their head down, they may be thinking about some of the loss that they had. We must understand that we have to meet the students where they are. Many of them are experiencing trauma still uh, with changes in their family structure or many students had to move during the pandemic. So it, it's about building capacity in our districts to understand the signs of trauma, but also providing the uh, staff support to give our students the help that they need and creating structures in our schools that give students uh, an opportunity to seek help if they need it um, without stigma that is often associated with accessing uh, mental health supports. You mentioned teachers. I just wanted to pivot and, and talk about, you know, nationwide, the percentage of teachers of color really lags behind uh, what the general student population is. We know Connecticut has struggled to increase hiring teachers who are people of color, including male educators. I'm wondering what your response is to the work being done in Connecticut and what more can be done uh, to help this. Right. You know, I'm really pleased that uh, while in Connecticut, uh, this was a priority and the good work continues uh, under the direction of Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker uh, and Dr. Uh, Shawana Tucker. Um, there are specific programs that didn't exist two, three years ago uh, aimed at diversifying the profession and making sure that all students could see themselves as teachers. It's really important that we tap into our greatest resource, Lucy, our students. Uh, we have students across the state and across the country that uh, maybe are not looking at themselves as teachers. And we have to do a better job lifting the profession and celebrating the profession, honoring our educators by number one, paying them a, a livable wage. You know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that in 2021, teachers have to work two to three jobs to make ends meet. But we really have to sell the profession as an opportunity to lift our country. 
and really tap into pipeline programs for not only our students who could consider themselves teachers in the future, but also we have other folks in our buildings, paraeducators, climate specialists, who have a, a skill set that can lend itself to teaching. We have to make clearer and affordable pathways for them to continue their studies to become teachers. Uh, the funding is there now. There's urgency there. We really have to move the needle on this. Uh, when we talk about public service, uh, of course, I've got to ask you about student loan debt. You know, you, there are many Americans who want to see the president use executive action power to forgive student loan debt widely. His approach so far has been targeted, such as forgiving uh, more than $11 billion of debt, and including that's canceling uh, billions in student loans under the expansion of the public service loan forgiveness program. I saw a tweet from you in mid-November uh, saying, quote, in case you missed it in our first wave of the public service loan forgiveness changes, borrowers got $715 million in relief, and there is more to come. How so, Secretary? You know, that number's up to $12.5 billion. I'm really, really proud of that work. Uh, there hasn't been a president in our history that's done more for loan forgiveness for those who either were uh, taken advantage of by their institution or their the loan servicer, um, or those who have really fallen on hard times and need a, a, a little bit of support to get back on their feet. Uh, 12.5 billion since March, um, you know, with the public service loan forgiveness, the intent there was if you serve the public for 10 years and you're paying your loans, your loans should be forgiven. Yet when I came into this office, 98% of the requests for that were denied. That's unacceptable. We have teachers, nurses who've dedicated their careers to serving the public. They should be entitled to that public service loan forgiveness. And I'm really proud of the work we've done. As, as you mentioned, you know, we sent out emails. I think over half a million people have received emails that they're closer to their loans being forgiven. 30,000 people have received emails uh, in the last m two months saying your loans are no longer in existence because you served the public. That's the intention here. So when we talk about getting more teachers, we have to do more like this to make sure that we're honoring the intent of Congress in 2007 to provide public service loan forgiveness. I'm really proud of that. The conversations about general broad uh, loan forgiveness continue, but I don't want to overlook the work that's been done under President Biden to really target and make sure we're providing uh, support to those who should get it. And I also want to share, Lucy, that we're working extremely hard here to fix broken systems so that in five years from now, we're not in the same position where we have people that are in debt so much that they cannot buy a home. They can't uh, grow their family. So we're fixing the root of the problem, but we're also looking at ways to provide loan forgiveness where possible. So as Education Secretary, how do you build on that $12 billion of student debt that's been forgiven so far? Uh, Senator Warren and others believe that your department, the Education Department, can use its settlement and compromise powers to forgive student loans uh, widely. What's your take on that? Right. And, you know, as I said earlier, those conversations are continuing. Um, and you're never going to get a universal agreement across the country on that. But we're going to make sure that we're doing everything we can to provide not only support for our borrowers, but change the system so that all students, including those students right now who are in elementary school, to make sure that they have access to college that's affordable, college that can lead to a good paying job. Um, and what we're doing, we're not wasting time on that. We're taking uh, American Rescue Plan funds, but also funds in the framework of Build Back Better, which I'm very hopeful will get passed soon, to really rethink uh, career and technical education and provide better pathways 
for our students in high school and community college to get to some of these jobs that we know are going to be available with the infrastructure plan passage. High paying, high skilled jobs uh, for Americans to help lift families, but also lift our community. A last question for you, Secretary Cardona. Connecticut has seen a surge in COVID cases uh, recently. Uh, there's a school district uh, in Killingly, I believe, that uh, voted to not have vaccination clinics in uh, on school property. I wonder if you can respond to that in this moment that we're in again, because uh, as you know, um, you know, when school when students are not in school, you know, it really impacts them. And when we think about uh, infections rising, um, what that means for you know switching back uh, to hybrid, um, you know, if things get worse. Let me be very clear, Lucy. I I was there for those conversations in Connecticut. I I talked to the governor daily. I talked to superintendents daily. I talked to parents daily. We're we're not going to go back to where we were. Uh, I expect schools to be open in person for our children in a manner that's safe. And we need to do everything we can to use the tools that we have that we didn't have before. We have access to free vaccinations for students ages five and up, boosters for children 16 and up. We know how to keep our children safe. We know how to keep our community safe. It's really important that we don't take our foot off the gas because we don't want to go back to hybrid learning. That should be in our rear view mirror. Uh, we shouldn't go back to that. We have the tools, we have the knowledge. I do encourage vaccination clinics in schools. I mean, I've been to Maryland. I've been to uh, other states where they're doing it in a way that's really positive. It's keeping the community safe. We know, and in Connecticut, I think that's a great example. If there's high community spread, it's more likely to come into our schools. Let's keep our community spread down. We're all in this together. We learned that, Lucy. We're all in this together. Um, You know, we were able to make some progress in Connecticut, and I want to see Connecticut continue to lead the nation in efforts to keep spread low, keep our schools open, and keep our students succeeding. Dr. Miguel Cardona, again, is the U.S. Education Secretary, a former education commissioner here in our state. A pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Where we live each day brings you conversations about issues that matter to you. And we hear from Connecticut residents 